Welcome to The Unscientific Method, where we unpack the research and lives of the young scientists doing amazing things all around us. I'm your host, Beth Castle, and today we get to talk about this amazing new research that's happening that focuses on the gut-brain axis. Nina Radisalievich is a PhD student in the lab of Dr. Brett Finley. She was born and raised in Victoria, BC, and received her Bachelor's of Science with honors from the University of Victoria through the Biochemistry Department. Her research interest in the Finley Lab involves the gut-brain axis and their relationship to Parkinson's disease. Welcome, Nina. Hi, so glad to be here. Thank you. So, so your research, which is so cool, has always been of particular interest to me since it, it really feels like it's these two big areas that are coming together, right? So there's neuroscience, which you don't know really that much about from what I understand. Um, and then there's the microbiome, which is really all the organisms in your gut. And you're, you're bringing mm-hmm. them together in this, in this systems level view. And to me, I don't know, to me, it feels like the cusp of this really different way of thinking about health and thinking about things holistically. Um, so I'm just curious, how do, you, how do you think about your research in general? Yeah. um, I mean, that's kind of the same mentality I had uh, starting out in this area of research was that it's this really cool field. It's kind of cutting edge. It's a very hot topic um, where, yeah, you're looking at these kind of complex systems and how they interact. So you have the human body and especially the nervous system and all that goes into brain health. And then you also have this complex community of all the microorganisms within your gut um, and kind of the multitude of ways that they can affect uh, the human body and human health. And so I was really interested in kind of digging in and untangling this, at least in some small way with my research. Yeah. And your research focuses on Parkinson's disease? Yes. Yeah, that's correct. So um, we we decided to focus on Parkinson's disease um, as like, I guess, in the overall gut brain access field, there's a kind of links between the gut microbiota and a lot of different neurological diseases. Um, So like mood disorders, autism, um, Alzheimer's even have all been kind of thought to have some links, but Parkinson's disease is one of the ones with um, kind of the strongest links to the gut, um, namely partially because Parkinson's patients often have a lot of gut comorbidities as well. So they have a lot of um, gastrointestinal symptoms as part of their kind of uh, multi-system disorder. Um, and it's not just the, the motor symptoms that we know as classic Parkinson's disease. Um, so there is this kind of gut involvement that's quite clear early on. So um, we're really interested in looking at how the gut microbiota might be influencing those non-motor symptoms and how uh, maybe it can trigger the whole disease process potentially. Okay. So since the since the microbiome is is a relatively new field from what I understand, can you set the stage for us? What did what did Parkinson's disease research look like prior to us starting to dig into this this gut brain axis? The Parkinson's patients actually had these constipation like symptoms and and this GI involvement. So so the 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 gut has been involved since pretty early on with with. Um, I guess, Parkinson's research. Um, however, the, the microbiota itself has been a little bit later in coming into the, into play. So, um, yeah, the, the Parkinson's disease, unfortunately is, is incurable. The, the neurodegeneration that causes uh, motor symptoms is irreversible. And so a lot of the current treatments, they're just focused on, um, 
symptom management. So replacing the dopamine that's lost within the brain to uh, help uh, manage the, the motor fluctuations. And um, there's been a lot of research into like deep brain stimulation to improve motor symptoms in the brain and um, even like grafting in neurons from a healthy source to help uh, kind of counteract some of that that neuron loss. Um, but that's kind of been the focus as far as I know for, for many decades. Um, and so this kind of idea of being able to modulate Parkinson's disease by going through the gut and maybe doing some sort of dietary intervention or probiotic is, is relatively new. Can you tell us a bit about the microbiome? What is it and, and how can it interact with the rest of our body? Yeah, so uh, what we call the microbiome or the microbiota is kind of this uh, community and this collection of microorganisms. Um, and you can have a gut microbiome, uh, which is the, the community that lives within the gut, but you can also have a skin microbiome. So that's a community that lives on your skin and so on. Um, so with the gut microbiota, um, this, uh, this community of organisms, it consists of uh, mostly bacteria, but also archaea and viruses. Um, and when we do studies of the microbiome, um, often we'll say, oh, this is a general microbiota analysis, but sometimes it's important to recognize that what we're really looking at is just the bacteria that's there. So it's not a full picture of the whole community. Um, yeah. And, and the terminology itself is kind of a little, uh, uh, ambiguous in time at times. So microbiome, uh, is sometimes used to refer to just the genetic makeup of this community. Okay. So kind of all the genetic components and then microbiota is the, the actual community of species. Um, but that kind of goes back and forth depending on who you talk to, they'll give you different definitions of those words. So, but that's the way I use them. Yeah. Very cool. And how do you relate this to, to Parkinson's symptoms then? Yeah, so um, currently what's mostly being done and what our lab has actually contributed to um, in, in uh, way is uh, um, basically just taking fecal samples from uh, patients with Parkinson's disease and um, healthy non-Parkinson's controls and uh, doing this type of sequencing, seeing what the relative um, levels of all these bacterial species are and um, just uh, kind of doing a higher level comparison if there's some that are more uh, more present in the Parkinson's patients versus the non-Parkinson's controls. And so then you can um, kind of have this correlation between certain bacterial species and uh, the Parkinson's disease. And you can also go further and say, um, you know, certain levels correlate with the severity of the motor uh, symptoms or with the severity of the constipation in these patients. So it's kind of, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's still very uh, correlative and associative. You can't really say that those species are causing any of those symptoms, but it's kind of the first step that, um, in the research that, that lots of people have been doing in this field. Yeah. Yeah. It's so cool. It's really interesting because it seems like there's always these really interesting different environments. I mean, I've only seen really a little bit in the, in the gut microbiome field. Uh, but, but it seems like there's some really interesting and exciting co correlations that you can look at. Um, I'm, I'm really curious, how do you move this from a, a correlational field to a causation field? So how do you, how do you start to look at the relationship between whether these, this environment is actually causing, causing these diseases versus is kind of something that's associated with them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is the tricky part. Um, and I think kind of one 
one thing that we have to do to start asking those kind of questions is move into um, models of Parkinson's disease. And most often those are animal models where we can control a lot of different aspects of what's going on um, and kind of get more at uh, a sort of a causal mechanism and what we're interested in there. And so um, what a lot of researchers will do to kind of um, show causality of the gut microbiome is they'll take um, animals or mice, um, most, most often that have, um, basically no gut microbiota uh, themselves. So we call these germ-free mice or notobiotic mice. Um, so they're raised in an environment that's completely sterile. And so they have no microbes of their own wow. at all. And so you can introduce these microbes from a source such as a Parkinson's patient or a healthy non-Parkinson's person. And, um, and see how how that influences the health of, of the mouse with you know no other I guess uh, outside influences of microbes there um, and so that's kind of uh, one way people have sort of shown that there is some causal element to the microbiome of of uh, Parkinson's patients that causes some um, some sort of disease but um, you know there's a lot of caveats with that sort of research as well so. Um, you know, mice don't naturally get Parkinson's disease. So this is kind of like a, it's an already an artificial system where you're taking certain readouts like motor scores as sort of a, a, a sign that there's Parkinson's-like um, symptoms happening or neurodegeneration is a, is a good sign of that. Um, the other caveats are that mice who are raised sterile like that, germ-free, have a lot of other issues going on, uh, especially with their immune system. It doesn't develop normally like it would. So um, they're not kind of the perfect system. And, and that's kind of true of all these sort of models we work with. They, they're kind of good in a lot of ways and, and good for a lot of different things, but they're never perfect. So that's something we always have to keep in mind with these studies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Especially with the, the really complex human diseases. Since, as you say, there's, it's really hard to find a model where often mice, which is the conventional model that people use, can't recreate a lot of those kind of environmental considerations. And so, so how do we start to understand those without something that's in a controlled environment? It's, it's a hard question. Mm -hmm. And it's something I think about often um, in, the, in the field of research that I'm in, which is really blood research and looking at um, blood stem cells and how they how they can reconstitute a system. Uh, the gold standard is is this bone marrow transplant in mice. And uh, mm -hmm. I've been trying to work around whether there's any other ways to really determine some of these factors. And it's really hard because you need this whole system. So you so you do need an organism often, right? You need you need the whole animal. Um, but, uh, but it still doesn't recreate it perfectly. And so it's, it's hard to think about how do I do this in a way that makes the most sense and is also ethical to the highest degree. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's a lot of questions in my mind as well. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and, and your research specifically, what is, what is that like? Uh, what do you focus on? Kind of my main uh, couple project aims were to start investigating how changes to the gut microbiota in a specific um, mouse model of Parkinson's disease, where they have a genetic mutation that um, causes motor symptoms and also GI symptoms um, in sort of a, a way anal analogous to Parkinson's, um, and see how those those changes to the gut microbiota how they change the the phenotype. Um, so very, very kind of generally and broadly, I started out with uh, giving these mice a whole bunch of antibiotics to sort of try to wipe out as much of the gut microbiota as I could. 
um, and see how kind of just do a bunch of tests, a whole panel of, of motor behavioral and GI tests to see um, if anything changed. I also kind of did the opposite where instead of depleting the gut microbiota, I added in a lot of uh, some new species from a wild type um, mouse strain that were kind of quote unquote healthy and didn't develop Parkinson's symptoms. I was hoping to see how, if, if any of those species could kind of alleviate some of those symptoms. And I guess with a summation for those results, unfortunately, what we saw was that there were no real differences um, with the, the Parkinson's phenotype when we did these broad level changes. Um, and so that was a little uh, disappointing, I guess, uh, given my original hypothesis. But um, in the end, I think looking at what we did and kind of how thoroughly we investigated this question, we kind of came to the conclusion that this is, you know, this is just the answer that we have, at least in this specific model. It looks like the gut microbiota is not really a huge factor in the disease development. And that's still something valid that um, can give us a lot of insight into the field. Um, and so uh, moving forward, I'm kind of more focused on um, the non-motor symptoms that these mice experience. So the, the GI and behavioral involvement and um, looking at um, whether uh, Parkinson's, like typical Parkinson's medications have any effect on the gut microbiota and how that kind of plays out. And then um, whether this kind of interesting interplay between constipation in Parkinson's patients, which obviously in and of itself will affect the gut microbiota by really slowing down everything that's going on there. How does that kind of um, cycle through and, and yeah, impact the gut microbiota and um, maybe through that also impact the disease, um, if that makes sense. So <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's really interesting. And I think I think you bring up a really interesting point that's not talked about super often, which is the importance of negative results mm. and, and finding that these things aren't actually impactful because in I find in the world of publishing, you've got only these big papers that you focus on that have all these kind of amazing results that have come through and it's all these positive results, but the negative results, which are just as important are, are harder to publish, which I think is, a, is kind of a, I don't know, a failing of the community. Yeah, for sure. I see that as a, as a kind of a huge downside of, of the field or how the system set up, I guess, where um, in science, there's all this pressure to, to pu publish these positive results. And, um, you know, there could be a lot to be learned about, about seeing what people tried and what, you know, quote unquote, didn't work. And there's a lot of knowledge there that's just kind of being thrown to the side and being shoved in drawers in science labs, which is really unfortunate. Yeah. So I'm curious, you are the first person on our podcast who has done animal research. Um, and I wonder how you think about that. How do you think about the approach to that? Because we talked about how important it is to have this uh, system and to understand something as a whole, especially in the context of your research, where you're looking at uh, the influence of the, of the gut on the brain. And it's, you can't get at that without an animal model. And so, so how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. Like, uh, in, in a huge sense, this is kind of um, necessary and unavoidable, right? When we're looking at these huge complex systems like the gut microbiota and, you know, the central nervous system and the, you know, overall host health with this, the, the work I'm doing, um, an animal model is really the only possible um, way to investigate these types of questions. Um, but yeah, I guess always in the back of my mind is, um, and I think with all people who do animal research should be, is there another way to investigate this? Is there an alternative option that, you know, is, is more, I guess, ethical and, um, 
uh, are the questions that we're asking very valid questions? And will they, you know, are we doing this in the best possible way and um, kind of not wasting animal lives, which is, which is a huge thing we, we should be considering throughout all this research. So um, yeah, just kind of measure twice, do once uh, with animal work, I'd say like measure five times at least and, and really plan things out and make sure that you have everything set up that you need to um, to do things properly. Yeah. That's something I, I try to keep in mind always. Yeah. That makes sense. I have kind of a, a selfish question. Cause I'm, I'm curious, I'm falling into this field of, uh, microfluidics and human organs on chips. And, and one of the exciting theories behind this field is just that we're going to end up in a situation where we can design these like physiomes on chips where you've got a whole bunch of different organs that are interconnected on the chip. And so the idea is that at some point, maybe this will be more predictive because we can use human cells than animal models are and you avoid those ethical issues. Have you seen anything like that in, in your kind of research? Um, nothing that like, uh, I guess intense, like having multiple organs that you could link together would be so cool can't wait for that time to come. I think that'll be such a, such an advancement for the field. Um, one thing that our lab does do, um, or is working on is kind of gut organoid models. So, um, taking, taking cells and sort of growing these, these in vitro gut environments where you kind of have an internal luminal space and you also have an uh, external area. So you can, um, even inject bacterial species into the center of these, these groups of cells that are forming this like mini gut. Um, and so that's one huge advancement too, that, um, can help us on our way of like, at least, uh, kind of increasing the complexity of our model systems, um, a bit. Um, and so that's something else that's, we're really excited about in our lab to work with and, and kind of model these diseases, uh, in so. Totally. Um, that's super cool. Yeah. And yeah, I agree. I think, I think there's still, still quite a ways to go on, on a lot of these ideas, but it's just, it's just such an exciting time, right. To be able to see for sure. people are coming up with these other things where, where it's not only, it will not only lead to more predictive science, hopefully, um, but it'll also lead to uh, being able to spare some of those animal models as well. Yeah. So I'm curious about how you ended up in science in the first place. What was the thing that first got you interested? <laughs> yeah, I was, I was thinking back on this and trying to like pinpoint a, a specific moment. Um, and I think it was really more of an accumulation of things that got me interested in science. Um, so, I mean, like in, in high school, I really enjoyed my science classes. I like just had like a, a general interest in it. Um, and once I got to university, I was kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do there. Um, and science seemed kind of this mix of what I was interested in and passionate about, but also, um, you know, could do a lot of, uh, a lot of good in the world and could kind of have this sort of, um, outward mentality, um, of, of, you know, uh, discovering or, or helping out with the world in some way. So um, once I started on that route, um, it was actually really fortunate to be able to work in a few labs during my undergrad um, as an honor student and a co-op student. And so I got to interact with a lot of grad students and see kind of what that whole research process was like. And it just seemed like kind of the perfect environment, like a, a good mix of, you know, flexibility in life um, and creativity, um, but also that kind of academic rigor that I was, I was really interested in. So 
kind of was just one step after another that, that got me to this point. Um, but I'm really happy that it went the way it did because I found myself in a really cool, unique environment here in the lab. And, and I get to work with a lot of really amazing, brilliant people. So very lucky to be here for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Is there anything in particular that led you to the Parkinson's research in the first place? To be honest, uh, it was kind of just a, a new area in the lab when I started. Um, and so when I first started in the lab, I actually wasn't sure exactly what I was going to be working on. And so I was talking to a lot of um, other lab members and seeing where their projects were at and kind of where it seemed like the gaps were in, in kind of what we were working on. And um, this seemed like a really cool opportunity. And uh, as soon as I heard like gut brain interactions, I was just like head over heels, like fascinated by it. So the more reading I did, the more interested I became. So it was kind of, uh, just worked out, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's such a cool area. It's so interesting and so up and coming, like what an amazing, amazing space. What has grad school been like for you? been good overall. Um, yeah, I can't lie that there's definitely been challenges, um, which I'm sure all grad students, uh, have, uh, experienced. I wouldn't really be able to, to do what I'm doing and be here um, without sort of the support networks that you get as a grad student. And I, I credit my lab a lot with that. Um, and also uh, my department and the friends I've made along the way in different labs, just kind of being able to celebrate and commiserate together has been such a, a huge support and help um, with, with undertaking this program. I would say grad, grad school has been overall a, a huge uh, positive experience for me. Um, That's awesome. So I'm very lucky. Yeah. I think the hardest thing that I've been coming across is sort of this delay in, uh, in feedback on what you're doing, right? So you can do this experiment for months and months and even years be working on this question. And then you finally get a payoff at the end of all this time that, um, you know, it's, it's very delayed and you kind of have to stick with it and persevere. Totally. It was, it, it's interesting because it's one of those, um, it's actually a question that I wanted to ask you about the animal research is because alongside alongside it being kind of this hard very systems level view and it's it's tough to set up the model it's also really long experiments <laughs> yeah like, how long how long are your experiments can you give us an idea yeah so uh my original experiment with this model which uh after reading about it they said that most of the symptoms become apparent after six months of age for these oh mice my gosh. So yeah, my first experiment was really, really long. And uh, within that experiment, luckily what we did was we kind of tried to profile the symptoms earlier than six months. So we tested them at six weeks, at 14 weeks, and then at 24 weeks. Um, and uh, what came out of that was actually, we saw the symptoms develop quite a lot earlier than we expected them. So at six weeks of age, we saw that our mice already had the motor GI and, and behavioral symptoms we were expecting. So luckily from that, uh, moving forward, I was able to do more short-term experiments. So typically um, my experiments run about six to 20 weeks, I guess I would say. Yeah, 14 yeah. weeks that's, maybe. That's still yeah. a really long time. <laughs> yeah, for Definitely sure. I'm getting those results, yeah. 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 What's that, what's that like in terms of, I guess, managing expectations and the way you kind of think about your work? Cause if you're, if you've got this hypothesis and then you have to wait this long, what's the in-between like, what do you do kind of while these experiments are running? 
Yeah. So, um, one, one way I've kind of come around that in my work is to just stagger things. So I'll have multiple things on the go and, and kind of have different endpoints finishing, um, in a staggered fashion. So I kind of always have at least one thing, um, that I'm working on with, with the animal experiments beyond that, there's, there's always tons to do. So, um, with, uh, the, the fecal sample collections that we do throughout the experiment, there's, um, we have to do the DNA extractions on that and then, uh, set up our sequencing libraries, which are these complex arrays, with different primers and barcodes. So we can tell where each sample came from originally. Um, and then it's a lot of computer processing, uh, of the sequences there to kind of assign the taxonomy of the the species that were uh, present and do these kind of analyses to see, you know, are there any significant differences between our groups based on, on the bacteria that are present and, and, you know, processing of, of um, different tissues, looking at, um, you know, we can look at alpha synuclein levels within the gut or the brain um, and that sort of thing. There's always, it feels like uh, a ton to do in the meantime. So yeah, I have no problem keeping busy on that front. <laughs> Yeah, that's totally fair. What was that alpha synuclein? Was that? What you- oh, yeah. Sorry, I guess I forgot to mention that with the Parkinson's disease. One of the the main kind of pathological features of Parkinson's disease is this accumulation of a protein called alpha synuclein, and so it kind of forms these clumps uh, called Lewy bodies within within the brains, and um, it's thought to be linked to the death of of the the neurons in the brain to cause the motor symptoms. And so the model I work with actually is a genetic model of a mutation in alpha synuclein to cause its overproduction and also its increased accumulation. So in the, in the pre-interview, when you were talking to Sophia, uh, one of our team members, we mentioned this thing, you, you mentioned this thing called fecal microbial transplants. Is that, is that the right thing? Uh, FMTs? Yeah. And I thought it was this mm-hmm. amazing conversation. Uh, can you explain to us what this is? I guess uh, fair warning to the listeners, this is going to get kind of gross. It's, it's basically what it sounds like. It's a, a transplant of the, the fecal matter from one organism or person to another. You're basically transplanting the entire uh, gut microbiota community and all, all that's involved in that um, to a new organism to see how hopefully uh, cure a disease or, or affect health um, in a positive way is always the goal. And so that can be kind of done from a, a top-down approach or a bottom-up approach. And it doesn't quite have to be like as, as gross as it sounds. There's people who have uh, developed these kind of freeze-dried poop pills. So oh it's, it's kind of a, you know, <laughs> everything's coated and safe until it reaches the desired area, which is your gut. Um, and uh, it's actually a really, really cool treatment. Um, and it's been being commonly used now for um, a disease called Clostridium difficile uh, infection, which is, is a, a bacterium that uh, infects the gut and causes a really, really horrific uh, diarrhea and just kind of long lasting, not curable by antibiotics, GI um, disease. And so um, this has had huge, huge impacts in, in, that, in that disease by basically uh, outcompeting the Clostridium difficile from the gut and, and replenishing the community there with, with healthy microbes. I guess the treatment overall has from that come into uh, a lot of hype in, in that, you know, you could potentially see the impact of transplanting a microbiota from uh, a healthy individual um, and curing maybe anything else that's also been associated with the gut microbiota. This is maybe still kind of a pipe dream as 
there's a lot we still don't understand about the the microbiome and um, what essentially we're transferring when we do this. It's quite a crude way of, of, of treatment. So there's still a lot of work to be done, but I think as far as I know, there are kind of pilot uh, like uh, clinical studies where they're trying this with different dis- diseases, including Parkinson's disease. So yeah, stay tuned. It might be uh, the treatment we go to one day. Um, there's a lot of really funny stuff about it too in, in the kind of... Uh, I guess like pop culture, like I think there's a the South Park episode actually about uh, fecal microbial transplant where um, they're they're trying to get Tom Brady's poop because he's the ultimate human being too. <laughs> so um, <laughs> yeah, it comes up every once in a while, but it, um, it's quite an interesting treatment for sure. That's amazing. I I admittedly have gone down this path of when I first learned about it. I was like, this is going to cure so much, and it's going to be so amazing. <laughs> for all these GI diseases and and we were looking into it and there's this amazing project where they're essentially trying to uh, grow a lot of the organisms that are that are in fecal batter and it was called repopulate yourself <laughs> yes oh I heard of that one I was gonna say the puns in this field are just top-notch <laughs> yeah it was so. it's so so hilarious it's so amazing um, okay so we're gonna do a few rapid fire questions that are just questions that if you can try to answer it in one question and we'll, we'll get to know a little bit about more about you that way. Okay. Um, Sounds good. Yeah. And so, so my first question is what are you most proud of through your degree? Um, I'm most proud of my perseverance. So kind of keeping going when, when things are failing and uh, just sticking with it. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's a hard degree. And I, I think, I think it takes a lot of work to stay focused and stay in it and stay feeling good at the same time. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Uh, what's been your biggest struggle through your degree? Um, I'd have to say learning to accept failure, which kind of goes with the previous answer. So um, kind of not letting go of my perfectionism in a little bit, in a, in a way. So, um, and, and, you know, discovering that failure is part of the learning process and that it's how you, how you come back from that and how you reintegrate those failures into moving forward that really uh, drives your research and your degree. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and so I saw in one of your bios that you sent to us that you're a big reader. So hmm. <laughs> who is your, who is your favorite author right now? Oh my goodness. Um, that's a tough question right now. I'm kind of in the midst of, of a, a fantasy series by Robert Jordan, the wheel of time series. So I'd have to say that's at the forefront of my mind right now, but, um, I really kind of jump all over the place and, and get into sci-fi, um, mostly fiction, but kind of, uh, the classics and whatnot. So, um, it's, it's always hard when you're, uh, reading for, for work or for school a lot to, to also kind of get the time to read for fun and for pleasure but I try to as as much as I can yeah I I feel that way I love reading fiction but I cannot for the life of me outside of work get myself to read nonfiction. yeah I know it has to be an escape yeah for sure um, so I'm, I'm looking to get into, actually, this is a selfish question, but I'm looking to get into science fiction a little bit. Um, and as someone who has not read a series before, I was thinking about Ursula Le Guin as, as kind of the Ooh. first author to go in and read, but I'm curious if you've got a recommendation. Yeah. Um, so I haven't read Ursula um, at all, actually, but she was just recently recommended to me. So um, I'm hoping to get into uh, her books as well myself. One a uh, book that I recently read that I really enjoyed 
actually. It was called um, Children of Time. Um, and the author is, I think, Adrian Tchaikovsky or something, like a really long last name with a T, which I know I shouldn't be one to like talk about long last names that are unpronounceable, <laughs> but it was. <laughs> um, and it's like, uh, it's a really cool, interesting story about space travel. Um, and and kind of has a lot of science elements in it that uh, may or may not be super uh, realistic, but are very cool kind of to think about and um, kind of the evolution of species and 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 consciousness and intelligence and stuff. So that's one I would recommend. Yeah, if you're okay, interested awesome. in that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sounds that sounds super interesting. I'm definitely definitely into it. Okay, so that's all for us today. So thank you so, so much, Nina, for joining us. It was a ton of fun. Yeah, it's so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. This was so great. This podcast was created with the help of our incredible team at The Unscientific Method. Our storytellers are Shada Swan and Sophia Ramirez. Audio editing done by Candice Ip, Kelly Liu, Richard Chiang, and Jessica Peng. Marketing and promotions are done by Helen Ip. We also have the pleasure of working with Advice to a Scientist and SciCats to create science communication workshops for the young researchers that we have on the show. Thank you to Laura Stankowitz, Candice Ip, and Jen Ma for making these happen. And if you want to let us know how we're doing, request something that you want to hear about, or learn more about the workshops, hit us up on social media. Follow us at the.unscientific.method on Instagram, or on Twitter at, at unscientificubc. Send us a message on Instagram, Twitter, or at theunscientificmethod at gmail.com because we'd really, really love to hear from you. Bye for now.